Hello and welcome to the Ori Clark Audio Quick Guide, a straightforward conversation about a range of topics and issues commonly handled by Ori Clark experts for their clients. My name's Dominic Frisby and joining me on this episode are two corporate and commercial solicitors and they're both partners at Ori Clark, Simon Walsh and Philippa Sturt. And this episode's hot topic is all about protecting a founder's interest. So, Philippa, why don't we start with you? What is protecting a founder's interest? Well, when a company decides it needs money and wants to raise that money, it will go out and it will find investors who want to put money into the business. And that's what most founders are looking for, and they're desperate for money and they like it. But they really need to be protected themselves in terms of their ownership of shares in the company their control of the business and running it, and how their relationship works with that investor coming in. And, I mean, it's important to the success of the company that the founder is properly rewarded. Absolutely, absolutely. And if you get to a point, and some people do, and it's quite disappointing when they do, if you get to a point where a founder has so small a shareholding that they're not really incentivized anymore to grow the business, then the business will do badly. So how difficult is it? Are there like templates that one follows or? There are templates out there occasionally, but normally they don't really work for what the founders want because every single business is different. Every single list of requirements and needs of founders is different. So you really need something that's tailored to you and your specific business and your specific structure. How easy is it is a slightly different question in that you really need money as a founder and you want that money in your business as quickly as possible. And so the temptation is to go out there and grab it. And so from a kind of economic point of view, you're in a bad negotiating position because you probably want the money more than the investors want to give it to you. Unless your business is absolutely amazing and investors are fighting each other off to try and give you money, you're always in the poorer negotiating position. So it's difficult, but it's not impossible to make sure that you're protected as much as you can be. And presumably, you know, on the one hand, venture capital is trying to squeeze you for as many shares as possible, but it's actually in venture capital's interest that the right balance is found because otherwise if you've got an unincentivized founding brain, then the business won't work. You know, there are two sort of main things that come up with venture capital. One is exactly what you're talking about, which is valuation. That often VC's idea of the value of your business doesn't match you as a founder and what you think the value of the business is. And it's really difficult with startups because so much of the value is based on future growth and anticipation of where you think the business is going to get to. So when you're coming up with a valuation for your company, you're basically sticking your finger in the air and coming up with a number. And then the VC is going to come back and say, well, let's make it half that. So while a VC knows that they have to ensure the founder is happy, they are not necessarily going to give you a lovely valuation on that basis. When do you do this? Well, lots of people, and I have lots of conversations with people who are just starting out, have just come up with a business. There are two or three founders in that business and they they want to put an agreement in place. And my normal response is wait, because if you're planning to do a fundraising round in the next kind of month or six months, you might as well wait and have that conversation, have that negotiation at the same time that you're bringing in money from third parties, whether that's angel investors or VCs or even crowdfunding. The next bullet point I have on the list is how long does it take? How long is a piece of string? 
the one thing I would say is if you're planning a fundraise, it's going to take longer than you think it's going to. And that is entirely true, whether you think it's going to take three weeks or you think it's going to take six months. And the bit that takes the time is finding the investment. Negotiating the documents when everybody's ready to go and wants to put money in tends to be the quick bit. And so from that point of view, a month, say, to sort it all out. But actually, the hard bit, which is founders going out there and finding the money, may take anywhere from, you know, a couple of weeks, if you're really, really lucky, to six months. Yeah, every time I've done any kind of fundraising, guys, not only does it go on much longer than you expect, it is exhausting. I think one of the challenges too is that you're not only are you raising money, but you still have to run your business as well. And you know, often you know you're you know normally at startup stage you're working fourteen hours anyway. If you're also fundraising, you're adding another four or five hours to your day on top of that. So it is exhausting. You're right. And plus, when you get VCs in they will ask you for what are called warranties about the state of your business and they will do due diligence, which again is going to involve that founder in, if your business has been going for a while, it's going to be involving the founders getting papers together and finding information, bits of information here, bits of information there, which is frankly pretty much a full-time job. If only people who criticise business understood how much effort goes into getting a business started in the first place and how hard it is and the sacrifices that need to be taken. Board control. Yes. So particularly with VCs, this doesn't apply so much to angel investment, but with VCs, you will quite often um, have a request from them that they have a member on the board, a director on the board of the company. Now, let's say you're a sole founder and you have one director come in onto your board who is an investor director. The way that, unless you provide otherwise, the way that decisions are made on a board of directors is majority rules. So if there's one of you and one of them, if one of you wants to do something and the other doesn't, there is no majority and so you cannot do it. So you have to make sure as a founder that to the extent you can, you control that board. And the easiest way to do that, certainly with angel investors, this works very well with VCs. I have got a VC to agree to this, but it's quite rare, is to have quite significantly weighted voting rights as a director. So my personal favourite, which I invented, is the founder has as many votes as the other directors plus one. So you always have, if there's two of you, you have two votes to their one. If there's three of you, you have three votes to their two, et cetera, et cetera. That's a nice model, because I was about to ask you, do you favour... Uh, boards with odd numbers so that you get a result? No, because you can you can sort it anyway. But if you have a board with an even number, then quite an easy and quite a kind of fair way to do it is to give your founder a casting vote. The problem with that is if you then appoint another director in the future, you you suddenly have an odd yeah. number and it doesn't work anymore. Or well, maybe, maybe the, the solution is either the casting vote or plus one. Yeah. But the second thing to do, so often with VCs, they may not, they may not be happy with the founders having control of the board, but absolutely the one thing that you've got to do as a founder director is ensure you have what I would call an entrenched right to be on that board. So that for as long as you hold shares, you're entitled to sit on that board or put somebody on the board to represent your interests. Yeah, we, I ran a, an investment company for a bit and um, there were three of us on the investment committee, but we always used to make, try and make it a condition of investing in any company that one of us would be on their board. With the investor, you will often get something that says for as long as the investors hold shares, they're entitled to sit on the board. I would normally put a de minimis miss on that and say for as long as the investor has, for example, over 10%. 
or over 15%. Yeah, fair enough. Because you don't want... If you give everybody with over 10% a right to sit on your board, you could end up potentially with nine other directors, right? Yeah, which is too many. Which is too many. I mean, I will say a lot of the time, the VC, the companies we invested in were grateful to have one of us on, of our, on the board because of our Absolutely. huge experience. Absolutely. And the beauty of angel investment in particular is that you you get that value add that isn't just cash that somebody that knows about your sector knows about the business and can help you. The problem is that relationship quite often turns to, why does this guy keep phoning me up and telling me stuff? You know, I need to be left alone. So it's kind of, there's a bit of both. Investor veto rights. Just two points I want to make is that um, normally what a lot of people forget is the sorts of things that we're talking about, i.e. how to protect founder rights, are entrenched in a shareholders agreement rather than the articles of association. Just for people who may not understand the subtle difference between those two, the articles of association are filed on public record. Whereas and, and they're often driven by statute or they are driven by statute, whereas a shareholders agreement is a private contract between individuals and no one other than the shareholders ever need to see that, although VCs and people doing due diligence will. So often in the shareholders agreement, you will see um, what we call investor veto rights or uh, another name for it are investor reserved matters. So often you'll find at the back of a shareholders agreement, it will say irrespective of what the board says, and irrespective of what the shareholders say, um, the, the, the founder or the investors have certain veto rights over certain matters. It could be things like changing the articles of association or it could be employing people on salaries above £100,000 or it could be sort of um, creating or incorporating another subsidiary. So it ultimately depends on the things that really matter to you as a founder as to what you want to control. Yeah, adding to that... The one thing that I would say, again, going back to protecting the founder, the one thing that you should never agree to have in that list of veto rights is the ability to raise more money. So quite often you will see, particularly in a term sheet from a VC, a list of example veto rights that they want, and one of them will be issuing more shares. Now that is effectively saying to you, you cannot raise more money, take in more money and issue more shares without our consent. They're presumably just doing that to try and protect themselves from dilution. Yes, but the problem there is if they don't want to follow on and put more money in and they don't want to get diluted, they can just keep saying no. And I have seen companies that have been really, really stunted by their inability to raise more money because they've got a difficult investor who just keeps saying no. So they have protection. The investors will have protection by way of preemption rights, which allows them effectively to pay to play. So they, as long as they put their money in, they can keep up their percentage of shareholding. So they have protection. They shouldn't get that extra protection of being able to stop you raising more money if you need it. And I, th- I think one of the other things too is that generally at the point in time where you're about to take on money into a business, it is kind of, it's the honeymoon period and people never think about things going wrong. But the whole point of investor veto rights are to envisage a scenario where things do go wrong. And for that reason... Pippa and I often get sort of blamed with being doom mongers because we do have to sort of take a worst case scenario because we're you know there to protect inevitably our client who is the is the founder or the investor. The the other thing you see happen quite a lot long term is where VCs get less interested. Sounds awful, but they've got a portfolio of businesses mm. and if you're doing okay and ticking along, they're not, you know, they're not necessarily going to be paying attention to you all the time. And the problem there is that as a startup, one of your 
you know, best assets is that you're nimble and can, you know, turn on a dime and do things really quickly. If you've got a massive list of consent rights, and with VCs, a lot of these rights will be operational things. You can't spend money outside of the business plan without our consent, things like that. If you've got to go to the the investor and get consent, it can take time. And if they don't respond to you and don't respond to you, it can, you know, be very annoying. And so one thing we sort of try and do is shift those rights to an investor director rather than the amorphous investor itself and sort of put a time limit on it to say, if you don't come back to us within, say, four weeks or something, then we can assume that you've consented to whatever we want to do. And that just holds their feet to the fire a bit as investors and makes them pay attention. Share transfers. So all this is, is again, in your shareholders' agreement that Simon talked about earlier, or quite often in your articles of association, you will have what are called preemption rights, which allow you, the other shareholders a preemptive, a first right to take shares. So if anybody wants to transfer a share, which to be honest is quite unusual in private companies because you need a buyer and there's not normally a market, but if somebody wants to transfer a share, they first get offered to the existing shareholders to buy before they can transfer them to a third party. Now, as a founder, there are two things to think about there. One, sometimes to make sure your tax position is perfect or for some other reason, you might want to transfer some of your shareholding to your spouse or partner or somebody else in your family or to a family trust. And so you will have something called permitted transfers, which allow you to do that without having to offer them first to the other shareholders, because you're normally transferring those shares in that situation for very little money. And so if you offered them to the other shareholders, they'd just buy them for nothing and you'd never be able to get them to your spouse. Um, So that's one way to protect yourself as a founder. And the other way is potentially to have a two-tiered preemption process. So that first of all, if a founder or an employee shareholder wants to transfer their shares, they offer them first to the founder who is still in the business or founders if there's more than one of them. So you get to try and keep that kind of founder employee shareholding within the group before they're offered to investors. And, you know, it's quite an easy way of making sure that you protect as a whole your shareholding as founders. And that sort of brings us to lever provisions. There's a sort of bit of crossover between the two, I think. Yes, lever provisions are otherwise known as good lever and bad lever provisions. But one of the things that clearly most founders will want to protect is their position if they either choose to leave the business or they feel like they're forced to leave the business. And one of the really important things to ensure if they are leaving the business on most terms other than sort of, you know, for gross misconduct is that they are getting fair value for their shares when they do leave the business. Often in a shareholders agreement or in articles of association, you'll see you know, sort of a, quite an amorphous term, like, you know, the lever will agree fair value if they're a good lever. Um, you know, often what 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 represents fair value is, uh, is quite a subjective um, thing. And I think as a founder, you want to make sure that you, you are getting reasonable return for your shares if uh, circumstances come up where you either choose to or, or are forced out of the business. And a couple of things I would add to that. One that it's, it, this is the stick that investors get to beat you with to try and keep you as founders in the business. And so often when founders are thinking about good lever, bad lever, they're literally just thinking about how many of my shares can I retain if I decide to walk off 
from this business. But very often there's a separate discussion there, which is between the founders themselves. So if you have several co-founders, you have to ask each other, how will I feel if you, my co-founder, walks out of this business next year? Will I be happy if you walk out of the business and keep all your shares? Because then in five years' time, I sell the business, having worked in it for five years and made all this value, and you still get 25% or 35% of the business, the value. And so there's kind of two conversations. There's the what is fair for investors to try and stop stop founders from leaving, but also what's fair between founders. Because I have seen a number of scenarios where a founder leaves quite quickly and the relationship between founders breaks down quite quickly at that point. Drag along. What is drag along? It goes along with tag along. So there are two things that normally come into the articles of association. So a tag along says if a majority of shareholders want to sell the minority of shareholders can force that majority to make sure that their shares get sold at the same time so they're not left in business with somebody they didn't expect. Now, that doesn't happen very often because normally purchasers want to purchase 100% of the company. Yeah, And that's why drag-along is important because drag-along at its most basic, and there are lots of different kind of permutations of a drag-along clause, but at its most basic, it's saying if a majority of the shareholders want to sell, they can force the minority to sell as well on the same terms. And that means you don't end up with a small minority shareholder who realises that it's a bit like a ransom strip, that if they don't sell their shares, you can't sell the company, and then they hold you to ransom and make you pay them a lot of money in order to just get the deal over the line. Now, the problem with VCs is that often VCs don't like drag-alongs because they don't want to be forced to sell. They're in a minority and they don't want to be forced to sell until a point where they feel it's right. Now, you can deal with that by basically putting in normally a kind of base number. So we can only drag you on a sale provided we get you, the investors, two or three times your money back. So that's one thing to think about. And then the other thing to think about is particularly where you've got more than one founder and so any particular founder might end up with less than 50% of the company, you want to make sure that founders can't be dragged. Because if it's your business, you do not want somebody turning around to you one day and saying, okay, we're selling now. So it's just making sure those protections are in there. A drag is really important for founders. You need it in there, but you also need to make sure that it's not going to catch you out. And a good solicitor will, of course, make sure that all these clauses are in the various contracts. Good stuff. Well, folks, thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much to Simon Walsh and to Philippa Sturt. And if you want to find out more about anything we've just been talking about, you can find that information in the resource library section at auriclark.com. And if you can't find what you need, then send us an email, contact at auriclark.com, and one of our experts will get back to you and tell you everything you need to know. My name's Dominic Frisbee. I'll be back with another one of these audio quick guides very soon. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.